0: Every day, the software has to show that it's valuable, and if it doesn't, you don't renew. Software companies these days, often they just bleed to death because they've got a high churn rate.
1: That was Denny LeCompte, CEO at Portnotch Security and one of the most well-respected product leaders in the world. Today, we're going to talk to Denny about the evolution of user experience discipline, how UX expertise is critical for success with product-led growth, and why building a solid and scalable marketing automation system is a core part of preparing any software business for rapid growth. Welcome to this week's episode of Capital Geek. Denny, my friend, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thanks for having me, Josh. It's uh, great to work together again, even if it's just for a little while.
1: Yeah, it's. I, I've really enjoyed reconnecting with you and working together. I'm, I'm super excited about today's episode. You have one of the coolest backgrounds I've ever heard about for a software executive. And I want to talk about that a little bit and then get into what you're doing now. And then quite frankly, ask your advice about a few things, because I know a lot of great product leaders around the market, but when I really need quality advice, you're at the very top of my list every single time. And I'm just honored you agreed to come on the show. I'm super excited.
0: Well, always know where to go for lots and lots of flattery.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, so let's get started and, and for people out there who, who don't know you, Denny, let's talk a little bit about just sort of where you grew up and this path that has somehow over the last, you know, fifty years put you as CEO of a high tech company here in Austin, Texas. I mean, where did you grow up and how did you go on this path?
0: So I grew up in South Louisiana, all the way south, uh, I like to tell people, if, if your house was south of mine, then we're already related and I know who you are. Because as, as far south as you can go, uh, pretty much at the end of the road, people say New Orleans, but New Orleans is like an hour and a half north. So grew up down the bayou, was not a good fit for the place, to be honest, and proceeded to try and get out as quickly as I could. So then I went to college and got a degree in psychology because I thought that was interesting. I got my degree at what is now the University of Louisiana and then went to Rice University and got a PhD in cognitive psychology. Or it could have been called cognitive science, right? It's not people's feelings. It was, I studied human memory and cognition.
1: And then, uh, so after your PhD, where did you go after that?
0: I got a job as a professor at LSU, which was ironic because I had spent so much time trying to get out, but it's uh, I couldn't quite reach escape velocity. So I ended up back living in Baton Rouge, which made my mother very happy because then we were just a couple hours away. But then after, you know, Four or five years in the university, I realized I didn't want to do it. For me, I always think it's like um, if you play video games, you know, you're playing the game and it's fun. But at a certain point, you kind of beat the game. And even though you could keep playing, it's boring. Sort of how I felt about being an academic at a certain point. I'm just like, you know, 30 years old. I'm like, am I going to do this for the next 30 years? I'm pretty sure I cannot. So um, when I was at Rice, there were a bunch of folks there in what we called back then human-computer interaction, and they had all gone off after they graduated to jobs at high-tech firms either in the Bay Area, some folks had gone to um, Compaq locally, and I'm like, I don't want to do this academic thing anymore, and so I actually ended up connecting with friends Friends of friends who were at Compaq and got a job there. And then that's the late 90s. And then like everybody else, I job hopped for a while because every time you jump jobs, you got a huge raise. And what I did was usability engineering because today we call it UX. Back then it was human factors or human-computer interaction. And the people who started it, that whole discipline were cognitive psychologists because what we were trained as to run experiments and a usability test isn't all that different than an experiment, right? And so the kind of people like uh, Don Norman, if you've ever read read his stuff, he's, you know, really big in in the UX community, kind of a thought leader. He's a cognitive psychologist. I knew Don Norman's work from when I was a professor. And so I ended up there, did that for a while. Uh, and then it turns out, and you'll see a theme here, I got bored after a while of that. I had done enough UX because after a while, it's just, try. back then it was trying to convince some executive that this was important and that they should not just get rid of me and all the people like me because we were useless, because we didn't write code. And so I started hanging out with the product managers because they were making all the decisions. I'm like, well, if they can make decisions, maybe I could go do that. And so I did that for a while. And so through all that, I was ended up doing infrastructure software, which was not a thing, first time I, I started, I was at BMC Software, and I kid you not, I did not know what a server was. They kept using that term in meetings, and I'm like, this is a server. Because I knew if there was a physical thing called a server, but they would talk about servers sort of conceptually. And I'm like, I just do not understand this. And so there's a lot of meetings like that. Uh, and then, you know, you just listen, you figure it out. But I ended up BMC, NetIQ doing all this infrastructure monitoring software. And then that's the next step is where we met. NetIQ was kind of, I don't know, swirling the drain. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. I had just moved to Austin to work. So I left NetIQ to move to Austin for a little company called Winternals. Winternals made cool stuff for Microsoft geeks. But then six months after I moved there, got bought by Microsoft. And you had to move to Seattle to stay. I'm like, I'm not doing that. And that's when I got reconnected to Mike Bennett, who was, uh, had just taken a position as CEO of SolarWinds. And Mike had been CEO of Mission Critical, which had merged with NetIQ. So like it was all in the family. And so I remember interviewing with Mike. He was explaining to me what SolarWinds was and how much success it was already having and how, you know, Mike was like, there's just no way we can mess this one up. It's just a question of how good we can make it. And so I just joined that. And then that's how we met and uh, spent a whole bunch of years there, left, came back. Because, you know, SolarWinds is one of those places, it's a uh, it's, it's super, it was super weird in a good way—a very unique business. But it's all different now. They've got new leadership. Um, all the all the folks from from the days when you and I were both there are gone. And so I wanted to do something different. And that's when I got connected with Chris and JT uh, at Elsewhere, and we decided we would try and do something together.
1: That's that's fantastic. What do you think about this path from cognitive psychology? into sort of user experience like is that a path that even today if you were speaking to a young person who has an inclination that they're interested in user experience would you recommend you know a minor there or is that a a path that gave you a strong foundation
0: i would say don't spend so many years getting a phd in cognitive psychology because that is just unnecessary now so what i would say is think about i was making that transition 22 years ago and honestly back then ux Most people didn't get it. Certainly in business-to-business software, the general philosophy was we're going to build it, we're going to add a lot of functionality, we're going to pay some professional services people. Sure, it's hard, but geeks don't mind because they don't mind hard things. uh, and Everybody's just going to suck it up and then you just deal with it. Because I can remember being at BMC and we were trying to make the installer, you know, the experience better than a poke in the eye with the pointy (laughs) stick because it will probably, you know, on par with that. Uh, and people were like, ah, you don't need to do that. This is a waste of money. We got professional services. We'll just do it for them. But over the subsequent 20 years, like there's this whole commoditization of software, including, you know, once once people started to see that software could be easy, once you had SaaS, like everybody now gets it. If you want to sell a lot of software, you can't only sell to people who are very technical and frankly, very tolerant, right? Now, even IT folks would say, I got better stuff to do than figure out your difficult thing. Like, I'll go find somebody whose thing is, does what yours does, but it's easier. So now UX is no longer a nice to have, it's a must have. Because of that, there's all this demand for UX people. So if you were a young person and you wanted to go and do it, I would suggest go look at the, if you're here in Austin, go look at the UT School of Information and you can go get a UX degree. You can do it in a lot of places. You don't need a PhD because, frankly, it's not that hard. I mean, there's some basic concepts. Any smart person can understand them. Like, it's just not that fancy. Once you have it, there's lots of jobs. I would say, even though I haven't done UX in, I don't know, 16 years, I still get people on the regular asking me, hey, do you know anybody? Because I've got friends. I've got lots of ex-colleagues. Like, it is a very, very high-demand profession to this day. Honestly, the only thing... The only weakness of it is if you are interested in management or like becoming an executive, it's a, that's a hard route because most, most companies might have one or two UX people. If they get big, they might have a director of UX, but you, know, you don't have a chief UX officer except at like the largest, you know, consumer facing companies, you know, like a, at an Apple, that's, I don't know if they have that title, but UX is their lifeblood. And so it's an important role, but it, you know, most companies, there's some limits on it.
1: Well, the great thing about UX is even if you don't move into a a senior executive role, it's a lucrative role. I mean, those people are are well paid for comparatively a low amount of experience compared to other roles. It was similar functions.
0: Yes. And today it's really broken into two two pieces. You've got folks who do research and you've got folks who do design and then you have the occasional unicorn who can do both. But most people fall in one or the other. I was very much research because that's You could let me design something, but I don't think either of us would be happy with what we ended up with but I can go and do research to tell you all the things you need to figure out the product. That's how I ended up really in usability because I don't have a strong design passion and and lots of people, that's their thing. And that work itself is super satisfying to them, but research gets more repetitive. And the truth is a lot of the research that UX people do is not dissimilar from what a good product manager does. Good product manager should not, you know, you don't look inside your gut to see what to build. The right answer is in your customer's heads and your job is to go and try and in unbiased fashion to figure out what their problems are and what they need and then bring that back to other people to design it, to code it, uh, you know, um, I mean, there's that old joke from the movie Office Space. I take the requirements from the customers to, but the the reality is that that's actually harder than you think because you can't just go ask people. Tell me the five things you want. They don't necessarily know the five things they should want. They know what their problems are, but knowing what they, you know, what the solution to those problems is is not like that's not their job, right? That's you, hopefully you've got good designers and good um, developers who can go and build something better than they could have imagined.
1: You know, it's it's interesting. I um, if I could build a curriculum for every product manager, you know, who gets into the industry, I think I'd want them all to have a minor in UX. It seems like a, a core part of a skill set that would be very valuable in a PM role, not only at a low level, but as you move through the executive ranks, understanding sort of how that research is done and how to do it effectively.
0: Yes, the most common and worst sin of a lot of product managers is that they get attached to certain ideas. Even if they think they're data-driven, they'll go and they'll talk to people, but they ask a bunch of leading questions. And so if they had a background in UX, they would maybe be aware that they're doing that. Uh, If you remember the old uh, Colbert report, he would ask people back when um, Bush was president, George W. Bush, great president or greatest president, right? And that's a joke, right? There's only two choices, but there's an equivalent thing that, that PMs will do. Do you like this feature or do you really like this feature? Because they've decided that this is a cool idea and they want to say, well, I talked to some customers and they all said it was that they liked it, right? You have to have, and that's where I would say this, the psychology background helps is you're trained to do um, research. The core things is, Sometimes the research is going to slap you around and tell you that you are just wrong and that that's what the data says and you and your ego need to just chill and move forward with a different idea and that's actually really it's really hard it's like it's a it's a frame of mind it's it's almost like a just a way of going through the world and I would say the most common thing like when I've interviewed product managers almost every question that I interview people with is trying to get at are you going to do that because if you're going to do that you're not going to make it on my team but I can't ask if you're going to do that because you're going to say no even if you are. You've got to sort of get them to talk about their process. How do you go about this and see if what they'll do is go after what's going on with the customer rather than just go confirm.
1: You know, thinking back to 22 years ago, you know, you're at BMC, you're you're working on these enterprise products. Nobody cares about usability. You just have professional services, you know, take care of it. And then over the last 20 years, we've seen this movement to a democratized IT function where you know the CIO doesn't just say, this is a decision we've decided to buy from BMC and you will use this product. Instead, practitioners go out and find their own solutions and, and talk to product managers. How do you think that transition from enterprise software selling to more of a product-led growth, practitioner-focused sell has accelerated the evolution of our products? Because it seems to me that it's, it's much faster now because you're actually talking to the people who use your software as opposed to a buyer who might be several steps removed.
0: Yeah, well, it eliminates a lot of BS. You used to be able to, like I had a friend at NIQ, she sold the Air Force something on PowerPoint. And it had to be on PowerPoint because the product didn't do none of that, right? But like she signed a big old contract and then, you know, we had to go and sort of try and make it do. And it was horrible. It was not a good fit. But the story she told was fantastic. Today, you couldn't get away with it because they would say, well, you know, if you want me to give you that kind of money, uh, I expect to do a trial. And honestly, if the trial is too hard, you're probably going to lose the deal. So it's, I think it's forced us to build better software because you have to come in contact. The other side of that actually is subscription, is once you go SaaS, right, Perpetual They sell it to you. And if it is, in fact, a bag of crap, like you just bought a bag of crap and, you know, you'd have to go and got a a lot of investment of front money. You're going to have to live with it for a while before you switch because, you know, the CFO is going to tell you you bought it and it's bad and you want me to spend that money again. Turn around and go back to your office. We're not discussing this. But with SaaS, you sign a one-year contract, and if this thing is, in fact, a bag of crap, you're not going to renew it. Every day, the software has to show that it's valuable. And if it doesn't, you don't renew. Software companies these days, often they just bleed to death. But they, they bleed to death because they've got a high churn rate. When when I was at SolarWinds, we bought a lot of companies, but we looked at a lot of companies that we never bought. And really, we, one of the most important things, you just look at churn. Is this software... When you get it, does it pay off all the things the salesperson told me it was going to do? Or did she sell me a bag of, a bag of goods that, that isn't real? So I think on the front end, that, that product-led trial experience, I'm going to play with it. I'm going to interact with it. I'm going to see if it's real. And then every day I'm going to live with it. And then 12 months later, all right, well, did I like it? Did it do what it said on the box? Okay, well, then we'll renew and it does force companies to be better. You can't just unload junk on people, which is good, good for all
1: of us. I, I think it's good for everyone. I, I love the fact that you brought up churn because one of the things that I see commonly happening with early stage companies is that they focus on sales, but they really have no visibility into how often the product's actually being used. You know, is it is it really being leveraged? and it's pretty scary to think about selling a renewal to someone who you sold a product to a year ago and maybe hasn't logged in in four or five months. I think it's pretty unlikely you're going to renew that software.
0: Yeah. I will tell you the, the, the beauty of SaaS, right, when we were at Wins, we sold a lot of on-premises software, and we tried to put stuff in the software back then to give us an idea of are they using it a little bit, but you're you're really limited. With SaaS, you can just look and you just go, are they logging in? You know, what parts of the product are they touching? You should know. You should not be surprised when a guy who's never logged into your software in the last three months does not renew, and that's where the whole customer success function has popped up because you're like, oh, we got a problem. Sometimes people. Don't even deploy. Like they bought it, and they really intended to. But it's kind of like you know the the thing you bought to do some DIY in your house, but it's still in the garage. You know, like you wouldn't renew that thing. You're like, well, you know, I had good intentions. Dude, if your business, you have SaaS, you have to look at what's going on with your. Your customers, that's a big change for product management as well as for customer success. You have to have this. And you've got all these tools for doing it, like Pendo and Intercom and Mixpanel that try and give you insight. But honestly, you could just look at the most basic things, you know, like, are they logging in? Are they doing anything? Uh, just as a start.
1: Denny, you mentioned that, you know, you'd worked with Chris and JT and you decided to work together and you guys, you know, wanted that you'll find an opportunity to partner together on. What was it about Port Knox that really spoke to you that said, this is the one you want to dig in and and dedicate some years of your life to really seeing this growth?
0: So I actually met Ofer, the, the founder, and uh, he was CEO at the time, three years before, so back in 2018. And I really liked the company. I liked the market. I liked, back then, the, the SaaS product was still a, a bit immature, but tons of promise. So I, I did that when I was at SolarWinds, and we thought, long and hard about buying them but it just didn't fit where SolarWinds was at the time so it was kind of always in my head that I thought what a kind of revolutionary product because it had all the things that I like it's in a very big market because network access control very big very mature you don't need to convince the people who need it know that they need it and in that market the competitors are delightfully horrible right like Cisco and Aruba, they have products that are the opposite of everything we've been talking about. Shocked full of functionality, nightmarish to use. Like, I love every time I talk to a network engineer and I, I just ask him, Do you, have you ever had to implement Cisco Ice? And if the answer is yes, they like make this face. And then they begin to tell you the horror stories. I talked to a guy yesterday who was telling me he was at an MSP. And they never could get uh, Cisco ISE working for the client. He lost a million dollar contract over it. He's still angry, right? And he's like, it's just, he says the product just could not, they couldn't get it to do what it was supposed to do. So I really like a market where everybody knows that they need a thing and the people providing the thing are providing bad things, right? It's why was SolarWind successful? Because HP, who was dominant in the market, their product was so bad. Like, our thing was good. It did everything you needed. It was simple. Uh, It was affordable. And the competition was just terrible. And it's much easier. Like, I wouldn't want to be in a Coke versus Pepsi fight where you're constantly, like, trying to keep up with them. I want an unfair fight. I want somebody who is so bad that with one punch, you're going to knock them down. So that was why I liked the market. But that only works if the product is really good. And then uh, last year, we took a look to kind of reintroduce ourselves to, um, actually, I had seen Ofer at RSA right before the pandemic hit, and we had talked, but I hadn't seen the product. uh, And then he showed it to us, and it was, you know, three years later, and three years is a lot of engineering time, and the product was very mature, right? So that Portnox Clear does everything a NAC needs to do. You do all the important features first, and then if you look at any product, eventually they all become like Microsoft Word. What was the last interesting feature added to Microsoft Word? Well, it's probably 15, 20 years ago. Like since then, other than putting it online, which was a big, a big move, like it did all the things a writer needs a long, long, long time ago. So I would say that, that their, their online, their knack as a service was very mature. It could stand up to all the big players because it had all the important features and it was just dead simple. So instead of standing up appliances everywhere and lots of hassle and then like, you know, log4j when that vulnerability uh, was identified. So if you are using a NAC appliance, you have to go touch every one of those appliances at every one of your locations for all of the, the patches that came out on that one vulnerability. This is not what IT people want to do with their lives. They don't want to be patching stuff. Like, they got other real problems. That's just a nuisance. So I liked Port Knox because it had that combination of big market, bad competitors, great product, right? So the other thing is that they built a great product, but these guys were in Israel, and they had sold a decent amount in Israel and other areas, a little bit in Europe. They had not really cracked North America. And it turns out that's really hard. And I mean, I always tell people, I'm like, I had to go start a business in Israel from scratch with nobody that I know in Israel, I am not going to do, you know, do very much because so part of what Elsewhere brought to the table and what got Ofer interested in, um, in partnering with Elsewhere is not, I mean, everybody's got money. Money is money. Like you could go raise capital from any number of people, but the differentiator was that it came with helpers, you know, with me, with the people that I know, we have this huge network of folks who understand network engineers who understand how to build a go-to-market engine, right? They could build the product, but they didn't really have internally the capabilities to build a go-to-market engine in North America. So that's what I thought. Okay, well, if I, you know, join this company, that's the thing that I can bring. I know, I mean, look, I, I know a couple of things, but the most important thing is I know some amazing people. So we have hired You know, chief revenue officer, chief marketing officer, chief operating officer, all these people who can come in and then do stuff every day I don't know how to do. And they're just building the foundation because we all know what a really bigger, successful company looks like. And when you're bootstrapped, you can, you just often haven't seen what the company five times as big looks like. But even if you did, you don't have any money to go do it because it's you know sometimes you just have to spend in the red for a while to go and do all these foundational things because like marketing marketing runs on dollars and uh it's really hard for bootstrap companies to ever spend enough to like break through that whole barrier where nobody knows that you're that you exist once you get to a certain point you've got this momentum and it's great but uh you know that certain point takes like a couple of years.
1: Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people misunderstand, which is how long it takes once you get funding before your marketing investment really starts to pay dividends. And I think you're right. One to two years is is very standard before you start to build enough momentum and have enough data to really even make the right decisions to drive results.
0: To to be honest, what we're spending a lot of time right now is uh, on automation. Because if you're going to build, I think about what we had at SolarWinds, that was a huge marketing machine, but it was so automated. Like the number of people relative to the amount of marketing we did, the amount of money we brought in was crazy effective. But in order to do that, um, I remember when I first joined and, and like you were still living in, in Tulsa and you'd come over and all the other folks, so much of this, the time there was just building out systems. Because you just can't do these things manually. You need to be able to go from I spend a dollar with, you know, on an ad word with Google. And I need to be able to follow the lead that I get all the way into my systems. I need to be able to turn it all the way to the point where a deal is closed. And I have this complete view because only then can I start optimizing, right? I need uh, marketing is so analytical today. You really have to be able to drop everything into um, software or into an Excel spreadsheet and see what's working and what's not. And because, cause that's how you end up getting the most out of your money. But that just, man, rebuilding all the, the automation is painfully slow, but it's super important. It's the thing that will, that you're gonna have to do and you can't wait. You're not going to get to be, you know, a large company and then do it. You have to do it now. And that's what makes you become a large company.
1: It's interesting because in this 20 years that we talked about, where we've seen a move from enterprise software toward PLG and more user-centric software models, we've also seen this transition in marketing, where 20 years ago, marketing was a very creative function with a lot of brand awareness and pretty colors and designs. And it was very squishy in terms of ROI, whereas now it's, you couldn't see, but now it's completely the opposite, you know The first place you're likely to in- encounter a data scientist inside a modern software company is probably the marketing team. Yeah.
0: Well, and you'd be surprised I think mo- you wouldn't, but a lot of people would be surprised at how many marketing leaders actually, their college degree is in some form of engineering. Right, like there's still brand, and brand is wishy and creative, and you need a different kind of person. But when you start talking about demand gen, what you need are people who are very, very analytical, and it just boils down to numbers uh, and optimization. And it's a, it's a very I think it just does not fit with I'd say the general public's idea of what a marketer is like. Those people still exist, and you can have all that analytics. If your brand is is uh, ugly and you know repulsive, you're still going to have a problem. So I don't want to knock the the things. Need to be pretty. They need to they need to evoke emotions, like feelings, and all that stuff does matter. But it needs to be put into, again, I just, it's a machine, it's an engine that you have to build. And that stuff is more around the edges.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's a great example of the kind of set difference between an early stage bootstrap company. Maybe you've got some outsourced marketing help and what you have to do once you take private equity money or, or VC money to really start to steal that company forward, right? Everybody that does it well, stops and builds the systems at this point because otherwise you're always behind for the next five or six years you never have the data to make good decisions and it's i think it's almost impossible to get ahead of it
0: oh yeah i'm having been in a company where the data was not cleaned early and you get to a certain size and you're like well this is just never going to get fixed like we're just not going to do it because the problem is too it becomes intractable because you're if you're and you know what? You you're like, well, we're already making money. We don't really need to do it. But it can become a drag on the company to go and kind of declare some level of data bankruptcy and say that we're gonna we're gonna fix all this. Like bankruptcy is a lot easier when you're small, right? You just got a little data shack. You're like, well, we're gonna just tear this down. But if you've got a giant kind of whole data village, you're like, that's overwhelming to even think about. And so you have to do it when you're little. That's certainly what we're thinking a lot about at Port Knox. Like right now, every day we're having discussions about data
1: you've been in the role for six months ish somewhere in there four months okay so a few months and any lessons learned you know that four months in where you'd say you know what if i did this again tomorrow here are a couple things i would do differently
0: (laughs) i would say don't do a international uh company when you're in the middle of a pandemic and you can't travel because that made it much harder. I have yet to meet in person, the vast majority of the Israeli team. I've got a plane ticket, which is by the way, the second time I had a plane ticket. I had one, and then when Omicron hit, Israel just shut down, said, nobody's coming in. We're trying to go in March. Because look, you can do a lot of stuff virtually, but at least my experience is virtual following in person is different than always virtual, right? If you've never had a meal or a drink with somebody, you can still do it, but I don't know, it's a lot harder to build trust. And especially you come in in this kind of circumstance and you are going to be moving the cheese a lot, as it were, like a whole different kind of cheese, like everything's going to change. A lot of stuff is happening. And, you know, what I wish is that, you know, I could be there in person because then people are like, well, I know this guy and I don't like what he's doing because I don't understand it. But I know his—I know in his heart, his intentions are right. And uh, I have tried. What I've done is uh, I've met with everyone on the team in person, one-on-one by Zoom. So we've done all that, but I still feel like it's not the same. So uh, my, I don't really have a big agenda when I go except to spend time, you know, eat and drink with people and kind of spend some time getting to know them as human beings. Because in the end, that's, that's what it is. And especially with a leader, you're just trying to do, I trust this person not to do dumb stuff or not to do stuff that is smart for the company, but that is going to hurt me because he doesn't care that you have to, you have to have that relationship to get people to go where you want to go.
1: It's a really great point, Denny, because in most of the deals like this that we do, you know, it's a great product with a loyal customer following and an engineering team that is paramount to your success going forward. And you know you know as well as I do that you know engineering teams can sometimes be very skeptical and resistant to change. And oftentimes what I've found is that my lead engineers will know more about the whole business, not just the engineering aspects, than maybe anybody else in the company because they're very inquisitive by nature. So I think being able to come into an organization like this and make this sort of transformation that you're doing While retaining your engineering team, I've never tried it without being able to get on the airplane and go see them in person, but... Yeah.
0: Part of it is philosophically, it's we're going to leave engineering alone. All the change we're doing is on the rest of the business. Support we've left alone. But engineering and support are kind of doing what they were doing. And we've we've added a little bit of staff to support. So that makes their lives a little easier because they were pretty tight. It's the rest of the business that we sort of just shook the etch-a-sketch pretty hard. At some point, we will have to make changes in engineering as well, if only to add people. Ultimately, we want to build new stuff. The weirdest thing is being in this role, I don't get to spend time hanging out with engineering because in old roles, I'd have spent most of my time and I'd have been vaguely aware of whatever pain marketing and sales is feeling. But mostly I could just ignore it because it's not my problem.
1: Yeah. Well, now it's your problem.
0: (laughs) And it's my problem. And that's really what you have to spend most of your time doing is what's not working. But again, the most important thing is you hire a great team of people who are much better at this You know, I've never closed a deal. I am not a salesperson. So my job is to hire a sales leader. and I've got a great one uh, in Sean Turner, and then he will go hire people he trusts. And so what I'm trying to do at this point as much as possible is honestly hire kind of in the extended family. So everybody we've hired is either somebody I know or somebody they know. And in the current environment, you know, there is this great reshuffling going on. So there's lots of people in the market, but they're, they're all being courted by multiple companies. Uh, and again, it's a little bit like VC money. Everybody's going to end up paying kind of the same because you sort of have to. So the, in the fight for talent, I think the most per, important thing is relationships. If you're coming into a group where you're like, well, I know some of these people. I've worked with them. I trust them. Again, they're not going to waste years of my life. I don't know if everybody articulates it like that, but you go to a job, you want to be able to accomplish something, some things for the company, some things for your own career. But if you end up where, you know, the leadership just takes the company into a ditch, I think we've all experienced that uh, somewhere in our careers. If you're old enough, it's happened to you. It's infuriating because you're just like, ah, we had potential. This was not a bad thing. You guys just did dumb stuff. You weren't listening. So I think when people are looking for where am I going to go work, they want to go where they believe that okay, we're not going to do everything right, but basically the leadership is going to care about the the employees. They're going to you know make reasonable choices. They're not going to you to make bets, but not crazy bets. And the, and, in, and that they're and ultimately also they're going to be good people. That's where the relationship. So you can go compete for talent, get people to join you on this journey. To building this company because they think it's going to be fun you know let's just say, work fun it's not like go to an amusement park fun but i i mean i've been trying to hire people for whom accomplishing things is very satisfying right like strong bias to action you want to go build something right it's not um you know champagne and parties all the time it's people who what did you do today we built this and we're going to go accomplish that and we sold some deals and we you know grew our marketing funnel that that's what satisfies them. Now that's partly because I think we all end up hiring people who are a bit like ourselves. And you know, and if you're a party animal, then you're not probably not gonna like my company because that's just not who I am. But if you want to go build some stuff, you want to accomplish things, you know, have fun while you're doing it, but like you're, you're driven to, to get things done, then that's the sort of people I'm trying to get into the company.
1: Well, you know, in my role as, you know, helping all of our portfolio companies, i didn't understand going into it how big of a part of what i do everyday recruiting would be it's paramount to everyone's success and what's great about Port Knox is you know when i talk to people about working with you and the team you've built it's hard to hide my excitement i'd work with any of you again anytime that you you know you needed me and i think that's it's hard to say about a lot of teams and a lot of people you know i mean there are We've all worked with these people out there that somehow end up in these leadership roles, but no one really wants to to work for them or under them or help them accomplish that. And
0: yeah, I don't understand. And then the the thing is, once they've once they've had a leadership role, they keep getting new leadership roles, and it's really weird. I don't completely understand how that happens. One of the, one of the reasons I wanted to lead the team is I was, just did not want to end up under another. CEO I didn't want to work for. I had some fantastic experiences, but it's always a bit of a crapshoot, like it, especially at the senior leadership level, like that relationship's really important. And so, you know, finding people, I the, the team we've, we've put together is, you know, I thought that I could build a good team, but, you know, I would say I've exceeded my own expectations.
1: Well, you've definitely exceeded, for your expectations, any hopes I might've had because the team you've built is just spectacular. Every time I see someone else joining the team, I'm like, I don't know how he did that, but wow, congratulations. Um, Denny, this has been super fun today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Any last things to mention about port for people out there that might be in a role where a product like this is something they'd want to look at?
0: You know, uh, given the state of cybersecurity today, probably everybody should have a network access control. If you've got a network and you want to make sure that only the people you want on it are on it, then you probably, your company probably needs it. It's worth exploring. The biggest problems Port Knox has had is people don't know that you could do this in the cloud uh, or much less that it actually exists and that it's cheaper than running the thing on-prem. So that's our mission is just to tell people we're here and this is not a fantasy. It's a real product that can solve your problems and it's much much easier than you would have imagined.
1: I've used traditional legacy network access control systems I was blown away by how easy Hortnox was to use and set up. And quite frankly, that was the eye-opener for me as a network engineer going into diligence. At first, I was like, network access control, ick, are you sure we want to do this? And then I saw the product and I'm like, holy moly, this is a whole new ballgame. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like original uh, NACs were sort of invented to torture network engineers. It was like, <laughs> This is paying back for whatever sins you've committed. You have to install a knack. Uh, and so that's kind of the biggest problem is getting people go, no, 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 no it's not horrible. It's not, it really isn't. Uh, and so that's kind of been our challenge. We, when we, when we took, uh, we took a couple of months after we got the funding to go and rework all of our messaging because we didn't think that was coming through enough. Uh, and I'm really excited by what the marketing team did to try and tell that story, like to, to grab, to grab the network engineer, like just try it. You will be delighted by how, uh, how simple this is.
1: Delighted, and I am delighted as usual with speaking to you, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and I look forward to talking to you again.
0: Thanks a bunch, Josh. I
1: appreciate it. That's it, everyone, and thank you for joining Capital Geek. Subscribe via Apple, Stitcher, or any platform where you usually find fantastic podcasts. Tune in again soon for another great episode of Capital Geek.